Welcome to your About Your Mother. It's the season of magic, and my interview with Anne Fessler feels like a dream come true. The spine of Anne's book, The Girls Who Went Away, was displayed on my mother's bookshelf throughout my life, and I knew it held significance to her story. Anne is an artist and a teacher. What led her to write her nationally acclaimed book was at first an art project inspired by a conversation with a woman in a gallery. To listen to Anne tell her tale, you feel like you're walking into a lecture hall about to learn something new, and you are. Enjoy our conversation. So Anne, welcome to About Your Mother podcast. I have to disclose, this is a dream interview that I've been wanting to do for a long time. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Your book, The Girls That Went Away, is a critically acclaimed examination of a period in our history that has been hidden from society and general understanding. Adoption is central to your life and your family. You are an adoptee, but your understanding of adoption changed in 1989 at an art gallery. Can we start there? Yes. So I was teaching at a college in Maryland, the Maryland Institute College of Art, and I went to an opening for a graduate student I'd been working with. And I was walking around the gallery and a woman walked in and she looked really familiar to me, but I couldn't remember where I knew her from. I knew she wasn't from the school and everybody has that experience multiple times in their life where they're in a small space, they recognize someone and they're, they know they're probably going to run into them and they can't remember their name. So I'm racking my brain to try to think, who is this woman? I asked several people at the gallery, do you know who that woman is over there? And nobody knew. And a little bit later, I see her coming across the room directly towards me. And I'm thinking, oh, who is she? Who is she? And she walks up to me and with no introduction, she said, you could be my long lost daughter. You look exactly like the combination of myself and the father of my child. And I actually started to have a kind of physical reaction to that. And I was one of those adoptees who really never thought about looking for my mother. And when she said that, I I started to almost feel Fate, like where where everything sort of blacks out around the edges and my total focus was on her face and I just felt it sort of closing in. My vision started closing in and I said, you don't know what you're saying to me. I'm adopted. I could be your daughter. And then I saw her start to have a reaction. And we are both in the middle of this room staring at each other, you know, checking out features and just immobilized for a couple minutes, just looking at each other and not knowing, you know, what to say next. And then she said, when were you born? And I told her and she said, my daughter was born. It was a year and a month off of my birthday. I can't remember what direction. It's not important, but she said, are you absolutely sure? (laughs) I think I know when my birthday is. And she said, well, you know, a lot of things get changed on records to cover the tracks. And is there any way that this could have been changed? And I said, I really don't think so. I said, my family was very, very open about my adoption. I had access to every single piece of paper that they had from my adoption. It was in a file drawer. And I was told, this is your file. You look at it anytime you want. And I grew up in a family where my adoptive mother was also an adoptee and her mother had not 
admitted this to her. So she wanted to be absolutely, it hurt her feelings and she wanted to be absolutely open with me. So I kept saying, I'm sure my birthday is my birthday. And she said, you know, where did you grow up? And I said, Ohio. And she, I think, surrendered her baby in Pennsylvania. So, you know, two states that are right next to each other and very often people cross over the line. And so she just kept asking me, are you absolutely sure? And finally, she believed me. So then we started talking. And of course, the first thing she asked me was, have you looked for your mother? And I said something like, oh, you know, I don't want to open that can of worms. I'm sure she has been hiding this. And she looked at me and she put her finger up and like pointing and she said, you have no idea. She probably worries every single day about what happened to you and whether you've had a good life. And that for some <laughs> ridiculous reason, had never occurred to me. Wow. And, and that's what opened these doors. Yes, that's right there. And the next part of the story is what opened the doors because I felt really well-informed about adoption. I was an adoptee. It was nothing was hidden about it. My parents were very open, as I said. My mother was an adoptee. I felt like I understood adoption. And because I grew up I was in high school in the late 60s. This is pre-Roe. This is girls being sent away. The women I interviewed are many of them are my age. And I knew what happened if you became pregnant and you got out of town as fast as possible because, you know, you would be absolutely ruined if anyone knew. Your reputation is ruined. You were told no man, good man's ever going to want you. You know, you're, you'll be called a slut and a whore and all this kind of stuff. Even though, you know, more than half of young people at that time were having sex before they turned 20. Yeah. Somehow, if you got caught, you were a different kind of person. You, you were, were criminal. Bad. You were bad. You were a fallen woman. And so, you know, girls were sent away and, you know, periodically people would disappear from high school and just about every high school class as a girl who disappeared and she would come back and say she had to take care of a sick aunt or this or that, or the other thing. So I knew the routine. I knew what happened if you got caught. And so to me, I could only understand a pregnancy and surrender from the point of view of a teenager who worried she would get pregnant. And how, you know, you'd have to decide, am I going to kill myself before I tell my parents, you know, let alone that I'm having sex, but that I'm pregnant. I mean, this was just, this is the fear of God is, is just this idea that you would, that this would happen to you. Now, of course, it didn't stop people from having sex, but it, <laughs> anyway, so I can't stop that very easily. <laughs> no, no, no stopping that. No. So, um, so I understood you know, what my mother had been through. And so I really did believe that she wouldn't want this skeleton in her closet to reappear and show up on her doorstep. And as I'm talking to this woman, and she's telling me a completely different perspective, and I realize as I'm standing there, that here I am, a 40-year-old adoptee, who thinks they're well-informed and is very well-informed about women's history and, you know, well-read about all those things, never heard anything about this. And I realized that I, I was completely wrong and that, you know, I had never considered that losing a child through adoption was any different than losing a child in any other way. 
that it's a loss. It's an enormous loss. And people talk about losing a child is the worst thing that can ever happen to you, but they never talk about that in relation to a mother who surrenders a child for adoption. Somehow they think, well, she wanted to give, in quotes, give this child away, so she doesn't care, right? And so as I continued to talk to this woman, I thought, my God, you know, it was like a giant light bulb went off, you know, in my head. And I thought, you know, this is something I have to look into. This is something I don't understand, something I've never read anything about, you know. And as we're talking, this is the really strange thing that really propelled me forward is as we're talking, I remembered why she was familiar to me. And that was because she was in my dream the night before we met. Oh, stop. No. it's And this happened to me maybe two other times in my life where I saw something happen in a dream the day before it happened, like a movie, like seeing it and then having it happen exactly as it was in the dream. And when this happened, I just went, ooh, (laughs) I think this is something I'm supposed to deal with here, you know? And so I have no explanation. I don't know how that kind of thing happens. I'm sure other people have some theories, but I had a dream the night before where it was the two of us sitting in a darkened room in chairs opposite each other and talking, like just talking, talking, talking back and forth. And I couldn't remember anything about what was said, but her face was so, because the dream was just so intense. I remembered it very well when I woke up that morning and it was, uh, I thought that's strange, but it was so intense that when I saw her, I recognized her and thought that I had already talked to her and met her. And so that night, I spent the rest of the evening with her, talking to her, and she educated me about her experiences. But I was a little bit skeptical in the beginning because I had never heard this story before. And I thought, how is that possible? If this is true for you know millions of women who surrendered, how is it possible that I haven't heard this? And so I went down and I wrote down every word of our conversation. And the next year I had a sabbatical coming up or half a year later, I had a sabbatical coming up. And I thought, this is, I'm, this is what I'm going to dedicate my time and energy to. I'm a visual artist and filmmaker as well as an author. And so I thought, I'm going to make work about this and put it out there into the public to try to get this more well known. That was my, at the time, my best strategy for interacting with the public and educating them was through you know, film or uh, art installation of some kind. So anyway, I started working on a a project. And then I found out a year later that this woman was living two blocks away from me. And she had been living three hours away from me. And she was separated from her husband living down the block from me. And I, when I found this out through the woman show I was, you know, visiting, Uh, I thought, maybe she is my mother, but because I said I didn't know if I wanted to open that can of worms, that she lied about the date on her end to be able to give me that space to figure it out. And so I thought, well, I have to find out. Is this woman, my mother living down the block from me, like spying on me or something, you know, watching me. This would be really strange. And so I called the agency because I had all my paperwork. I called the agency in Toledo and said, what am I entitled to? And they said, oh, you can have your birth certificate anytime you want it. Because in Ohio, if you were born before, I don't know, 64 or something, you always could have your birth certificate. 
they shut the records down in the early 60s in Ohio. And so I sent away for my birth certificate and it turned out that I was going to the town, the next biggest town in a month for an art exhibition of the work I made based on meeting this woman. And it was literally a half an hour from the town my mother grew up in that I learned from her birth certificate. And so I went there and to get, look for a yearbook picture of her to see if I looked like her. I had no intention of showing up at her door or whatever, but I wanted to see what she looked like because as an adoptee, of course, you never look like anybody right. in your family. And so I was curious. And so I did go to that town and that's another long story. I think I cover some of that in my book, but it is, I met my uncle who didn't know who I was and he gave me her married name, her address, her phone number. And after that, I drove by her house to make sure that she was living okay, like that her family didn't reject her and she was living in some, you know, awful circumstances. And I drove by and she had this nice house and beautiful gardens and this and that. And I thought, okay, she's okay. Mm. I'll think about whether or not I want to contact her. And I sat on that for <laughs> 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. And in that time, you begin this work. Yes. Um, the girls that went away. First, I did a couple other projects. I made a couple short films. I made a film about that, going to look for the yearbook picture. I, you know, all of my work is storytelling. So whether it's through film or artist books or installations, you experience it in a time-based way and a story is being told. So I use stories of individuals to speak about larger issues. So one person's story becomes kind of an example of some larger issue. So anyway, yes, I did a, a number of other projects that were both autobiographical. Well, I guess they both were autobiographical. And each time I would exhibit them or talk about them in an artist talk, I would have people come forward and say, that happened to my mother, that happened to my aunt, that happened to my sister. And in the process I also left room in a couple of the exhibitions I did where I invited people to leave their stories posted in a space on the wall so so that people understood this is my story that I'm telling, but there are many other people out there with different stories, and I wanted to see what other people would say. And I knew the second I did that, that this I had to do something bigger because there were stories left anonymously by women and men about losing their children through adoption that were just heartbreaking. And so I realized that this was not just <laughs> this woman. This was way bigger that I was like, I was seeing the tip, the very tip of a gigantic iceberg that has been hidden under the water for a long time. time. And I, that just drove me to say, this is not right. This is, you know, this is an important part of women's history. This is an important part of adoption. And of course, adoption is always portrayed in the media as win, win, win. You know, everybody comes out better in the end. I knew from, you know, it came from meeting this woman, but it was like all these things and the follow-up just, uh, you know, I had to figure out a way to do it though. I didn't know if women would be willing to talk to me. I really didn't. At that point, I had no... Like I wasn't connected in any way with any groups or adoption people or anything. And there weren't that many things going on at that time. Yeah. So, so I decided that I was going to initiate an oral history project where I would interview people. And my initial plan was to use their voices so that they would have agency and voice that had been denied to them to use that 
as the voiceover narrative in a film that would use images from that time period so that what they're saying is their truth and what the films of that time period are saying is something totally different. They talked about all these unwanted children that were available and so forth. So that was my goal was to work on this film. And I was gathering the voices to do that. And then, but my most important part of that was to do interviews. And because I wanted to get these stories recorded before it was too late, because the women were aging. One of the women I interviewed was 85 when I interviewed her. And so I, it was very important for me to get as many interviews as I could. Thinking down the road, I'm going to work on this film. I was still doing footage research, archival footage research and so forth. And then I got a, like the most incredible fellowship opportunity at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard where I could take a year off of teaching and dedicate every single day, every hour to working on this and conducting interviews and, and, you know, continuing this. And so because teaching is very demanding in a college and you're always pulled away from what you want to work on because you have to be prepared and for your students and you owe them the best that you can give them. And so if it wasn't for that fellowship, it would have been very hard to get this off the ground. So during the fellowship, I think I interviewed 50 women. And then the next year, I took a year off from the school again to interview widely across the country because I thought it was important that I represented every region of the country. While I was there, really quickly after I got there, there was a big article in the Boston Globe about this project and about me coming to Radcliffe to work on it. And they used quotes from some of the interviews I'd already started to do. So I started to interview in 2002. And I started just with people I could drive to, you know, and because I didn't have any kind of funding to, you know, fly across the country to meet with people in Oregon or California. So I just started with what I, the people I could get to. And so I had a few interviews under my belt and the person who wrote the story, I allowed them to quote from some of these interviews. Well, When that story came out, I spent the first month at Radcliffe answering emails. Wow. Because all it was just at the beginnings of when this was 2003. It was just at the beginning of when you could send a link. (laughs) Makes me sound ancient. But, you know, this is like... I'm ancient with you, too. I get it. I remember. <laughs> so you could send a link for a story that was in a newspaper in Boston to somebody who lives in Texas, for example, and you could read that story. Otherwise, you know, you how would you know about it, right? So I started getting emails from people from all over the country, and they were doing... They were saying the same thing that people had said when I gave talks, and that was, that happened to my sister, that happened to my mother, that happened to my grandmother, that happened to my aunt. And I was overwhelmed with this this kind of people just coming out of the closet talking about it, except that at that time, I did not get an overwhelming number of emails from the mothers themselves. Uh, And partly that was because there were so many women still keeping their secret, as there are today. But I mean, at that time, there just wasn't an atmosphere conducive for many of those women to come out. And so I made up a kind of prospectus saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm interviewing women. I need to record your voice. So if you have problem with voice recognition, I can't interview you because I need to use that. My goal is to get these stories out into the public. And so 
I asked all those people who wrote me, I said, can you send this? If there, if it was somebody still living, can you please send this to your friend? And if they, or your mother or your aunt or your sister, and if they're willing, just tell them to contact me. And so I started building a kind of database of people from all over the country uh, that um, would maybe not have come forward, or I don't know how I would have ever found them except that somebody knew them and that somebody, you know, passed the link onto them. That's incredible. Yeah. So I, I told people if, if they were emailing me from anything other than the New England area, I said, look, right now I'm only interviewing in the six New England states. That was my uh, parameter of my Radcliffe Fellowship. I'm going to expand it. So let me put you on my list. And when I think I'm going to make a trip to Wisconsin or Texas or Oregon or California or Iowa or wherever, I will contact you, you know, in advance and we'll see if we can set up an interview. And I had way more people than I could get to because, um, you know, what I, I felt like I wanted to get at least a hundred interviews. So that article and the response also precipitated interest from people in the publishing world. I was approached by some people who said, this should be a book because you have all these, you know, it needs to be documented in this way so it could be used for research and, and gender studies classes. And so I set aside the whole film project and started working on a book, which meant I needed to, con in my mind, what I wanted to do was contextualize all of the sto their stories within the social circumstances of the time, because every single time I talked to an adoptee who showed up at one of my exhibitions, and I would say to them the same thing this woman said to me, have you looked for your mother? Do you have contact? Have you had a reunion? I cannot tell you how many of them said, why would I want to know her? She didn't want me. Oh, yeah, right say, there. Oh, so now I'm the one who I'm feeling like now I'm trying to educate them. So when, as I was working on the book, I was thinking about many things. One was, of course, getting these stories recorded for posterity and preserve them and so forth. But it was as much for the women, because so many of the women I, I, I interviewed as I was moving through this process had not talked to anyone ever about this. They had not told husbands. They had not told children. Some had become activists. But a large number of them had not talked to anyone. And when they got this prospectus, you know, forwarded to them from a friend, they decided that they had been silent long enough. And if there was somebody who really wanted to know the truth of their experience, that was key. Someone who would listen and would be non-judgmental and just really wanted the truth that they were willing to sit with me and tell me their story. And these were long. I mean, oral history interviews, they, the shortest was an hour. The longest was four hours. And um, what was it like to oh. hear these stories for the first time? Because people don't know, which your book does exquisitely because it, it, it captures how it was a perfect storm on so many yeah. levels. Yeah. What was it like to listen to them talk about was, this for the first it was time? Heartbreaking. It's like every single interview raised my level of dedication to this project. I the bet. women taught me. My job was to listen and record. They taught me what had been going on in that time period for women who did get pregnant. Yeah. And 
I was, first of all, I was amazed that it didn't matter if I was interviewing in Arkansas or, you know, California, the stories were so, so similar. The way they were treated, it was just a phenomenon at that time that dictated that if you were from a middle-class family, you could not keep that child. It was out of the question. It reflected on your family. I mean, families, some of these families moved to a different town because they thought people there had maybe would figure out why their daughter was sent away. Fathers worried that they were going to get fired from jobs because they had a bad seed daughter, you know, uh, that they couldn't keep control of their daughter. It was like the worst thing a girl could do. And of course, it was the girl. It wasn't the couple because Never. it was the girl's job to stop the advances of the young man. And the man was expected to keep pushing, keep trying, keep another base, another base, you, know, yeah. you get to the next base. But, and that was expected. And it was like a feather in their cap if they could move this, you know, farther. But for the young woman, if she, you know, if she got pregnant, then it was 100% her fault. And at that time, there was no test for paternity, no accurate test for paternity. So, you know, there was no way to even prove, you know, like in court, if one wanted to take it that far, who the father was, because there was no absolute proof of paternity that there is now with DNA. One anecdote where there was a 19-year-old boy that had three girls pregnant at the yes. same time. Yes. And there were multiple people who got pregnant by somebody who had gotten other girls pregnant. Yeah. And that, and then when you were to get married, that you were supposed to learn sex from the husband. There was no puberty yeah. head. There was no yeah. contraception, like a, a perfect storm. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit more about that, where all the pieces started coming together. Yes. And you were So first of all, you have an environment where women can't control their own birth control. Uh, there's the birth control pill is not available at that time, not for someone who's unmarried. Um, yeah. 1966 just, birth control required a ring, correct? That's right. That's yes. right. So, and until Title IX, uh, the Title IX uh, Amendment to the Educational Act, which everybody thinks of as the act that equalized sports, money for women's sports, that made it impossible for a school that took government money to kick a girl out of school if she was pregnant. Up until that time, up until 73, really, if a woman was even suspected of being pregnant in high school, like rumors started, she was called down to the principal's office and she was told she had to go to the doctor and get a pregnancy test. And if she could not prove she was not pregnant, she could not come back until she you know, had the baby. And if she kept the baby, she could not return. So that meant that a girl, this is right at the time when so many women are going to college. It's like, you know, post-war, upwardly mobile, middle-class, growing middle-class. Girls were having opportunities they'd never had before. These middle-class parents wanted their girls to go to college. If they kept their child, that was the end of it. Absolutely the end. And as far as those families were concerned and society was concerned, her marriage process, Projects with prospects. Sorry. It's a project go, too. Yeah, project. <laughs> a marriage project. It's a project. Uh, <laughs> would go way down. She'd only be able to get some crummy guy who was willing to accept 
raising another man's child. I mean, the the attitudes at those times, at, at that time was so different from today that for the adoptees born of these women, they cannot imagine a time where this this these kinds of circumstances prevailed. So of course they feel given away. They feel like they've been rejected by their mothers. Those mothers had no choice. They were put on a conveyor belt. They were told by family. Many of the family said, "If you know you keep that child, you don't come back here. That's we are not going to have an illegitimate child in our household." The circumstances were horrible. So it felt like it came from every direction. It was the families. Some of the, I I mean, I had to cry at how some of these mothers treated their daughters. Mm -hmm. It it was just, it's, and they were put on a conveyor belt, abandoned. They're just babies. Yeah, exactly. And and then being strapped down and delivering babies and maybe holding them for four days, maybe never seeing them at all. It was just horrific. Since they had never had a child before, they had no idea what was coming. And when they were sent away to these maternity homes to, you know, banished out of their hometowns and sent to these maternity homes where they could hide during their pregnancy, you know, all these ideas were reinforced there. You're not good enough. You're unworthy to be a mother. You're a bad girl. You need to um, surrender this child to parents who can give it more. If you love this child, you will give it up because how can you deny your child this wonderful family that can give it so much more than you can? You know, they really worked and manipulated the girls to convince them that this was the best thing. Now, of course, the parents were probably at home saying, you know, convince her, convince her. We don't want her to come home with this child. People who grew up in poorer families didn't have the social status to lose. So there were women who were able to keep their children, but most of them were not upwardly mobile middle-class families. And of course, this is a very white phenomenon, I have to say. These were upwardly mobile white families. And they had a certain amount of deniability about their girls, their their daughter's behavior, because, of course, their behavior was hidden. Whereas in other communities, the families were like, you're not giving away my grandbaby, you know. And so the children were raised within the extended family. So what do people see? They see that and think, oh, these people over here are loose women, but all these the lily white women over here are not. And that's because they were hiding them away. You know, people believe what they see. You know, they believe what they're told. And, and the, the, all of this is propelled by uh, the adoption industry, really, you know. Um, and the churches who run the homes, who, who believe that this is wrong for a single woman to raise a child. So, you know, the economy was against them. Women's rights, you know, a lot of legislation that was passed later through civil rights legislation uh, in turn helped women because at that time women couldn't even get a credit card. If they, if they were working and their husband wasn't, it's still the, the credit accrued to their husband, not to them. Yeah. Um, and they were so powerless. They were powerless. It was very hard for them to be on their own. You know, how are you going to work? Unless your family said, we'll watch the child while you're at work. There's not really a daycare system like there is now, inadequate as it is. So how in the world are they going to make it in the world, make money to support their child if they have no support system? And then and now there is no one holding out their hand to support these women. And so 
they really, they didn't really have two options. And like I think I said in the book, having a choice requires two viable options. And they only had one option, which was to stay in the good graces of their parents and do what they had to do. If they were older, if they were teachers or nurses, they would have lost their jobs. You could not be an unmarried teacher or nurse with a child, a never married teacher or nurse with a child, because you would be seen as immoral and you couldn't have immoral people teaching your children. So, I mean, some of the women I interviewed were in 35 or, you know, 25 and had professions, but they could not, they would lose all of that and not be able to work if they kept their child. So the idea that they had a choice is, is just not true. My mom was 27 and, and was told you, nobody will want you. That's right. That's and right. That was they all told that. And one of the uh, data points that comes out is, yes, there were lots of teenage girls, but there were, to your point, there were a lot of middle in their 20s. Absolutely. That were doing and that. 30s. And I, 30s. And I, I will say that the way this impacted women, first of all, seven of the 100 women I interviewed were raped. And so if, if people think this is something to do with their behavior, their sexual behavior, in some cases, you know, it wasn't even a choice for them to have sex. And 30% of the women I interviewed never had another child. That's very high for that period of time. It, they were so traumatized afterwards. Again, they didn't know what was coming. All they knew in the beginning, this is a problem. How do I get out of this? Then as they progress through pregnancy, of course, hormones start kicking in. They fall in love with this baby. And then it's just taken away because they're already on this. We called it the conveyor belt. So then, you know, they get out and they're changed. Now they're mothers, right? They're not high school girls or college girls or teachers or nurses. They are mothers and they cannot, they're not in a situation to mother that child. And some of the women suffered PTSD. A lot of them had physical ailments that went away when 30 years later, they reunited with their child. It was a bad relationships is a big, is a very common one. Mm -hmm. Very bad marriages and things like yeah. that. A lot of people felt worthless. They felt like they could not tell a decent guy, you know, in quotes, <laughs> about what had happened to them. And so they lowered, they voluntarily lowered their standards uh, to somebody who they thought would stay with them if they ever found out. Some people um, self-medicated, they drank too much, they, you know, because they had all of these feelings and some people got pregnant again because they were, they just had this incredible pull and desire to mother a child and they sometimes got quickly married. They, you know, they were going to do it the right way this time, but some of the married people they didn't even love because they were desperate to have a child. And so they picked somebody who was like their parents would accept and whatever and married them. I mean, the, the fallout around this social practice, you know, this it was just horrendous. And there's some women who, who just shut down because emotionally were afraid to get into any kind of situation where they would lose somebody again. You know, attachment is a big problem. One of your uh, storytellers, Edith, 
I remember it was, how did you survive? And she said, I turned myself to stone, just turn the world off. <laughs> the interesting thing about Edith, she was older when I interviewed her and she lived in, was either Vermont or New Hampshire by herself with no electricity and raised sheep. She was an amazing woman. And she was, I could tell, still in love with the man she had met, who she met on an exchange program to Italy. She's since reunited with him and is friends with him now and has taken her daughter, who she reunited with, to Italy to meet him. But there's a, there were several people who still were carrying torches for the person. They loved them and they, you know, they would have married them in a heartbeat, but the family wouldn't allow it because depending on the state and what the age is of consent and, you know, marriage without parents' approval and so forth, some of them, they just were not able to marry. But yes, Edith, Edith just, I, I think the reason she never married was because she just could not deal with emotions again. She just ran away from it. She shut down emotionally. She didn't want anything to put her back in that state of mind that she was in when she lost her daughter. So she said, yes, the way she dealt with it was to turn herself into a stone. Heartbreaking. It is. I got through any of these interviews without tears running down my face. And <laughs> of course, the women were the same, you know, so we'd be sitting there talking. Some of them I have to stop periodically. I couldn't even use them in audio versions of this anywhere because they were just sobbing through the, you know, through the interview. Well, and it's the first time that it's coming out most yeah. of the time. And can I read this passage with you? Absolutely. This is, talk about a puddle, Dorothy. <laughs> when it was over, the last thing I remember was that little pink blanket that little shred of pink blanket that I could see over the nurse's white shoulder going out the door. And that's the last time I saw my daughter. How did that change you as an adoptee, knowing that that's what was happening? What happened, one of the things that happened is at the end of the interview, you know, you, you really should end it, but keep the tape running because sometimes as soon as you shut Shut off the tape. Somebody says, Oh, I didn't tell you. And then they tell you this unbelievable story. Oh, Anne, I have learned that. <laughs> I turn it's it's off the record when you're like, Oh, I can't believe I didn't record that. I know. But when I really turned off the tape, I wish I had this, but I can't tell you how many of them afterwards said, Have you met your mother? And here I am, right? Mm. And I'd have to say, well, I know where she is, but I have not contacted her. Oh, boy. You need, you have to. You have to contact her. You at least need to let her know you're okay. She'd be so proud of you and all this kind of stuff, right? So at some point, I wrote a letter to my mother. And in that letter, given her age, she was born in 1928. Eight. Given the time she was born, I knew it would have even been worse for her generation. And so I really figured that she had not told anybody, including her husband. And I didn't want to freak her out, but I did want to let her know I was okay and give her the opportunity to contact me. I mean, to, you know, she, she'd have my information. If she wanted contact, she could write back and so forth. So I sent her this letter and I didn't hear back. And so I thought, well, my guess is probably true. 
she's afraid of bringing all this up again. She's afraid of contact. She doesn't, hasn't told her kids, you know, and how is she going to explain me all of a sudden after all these years? But then I'm doing the interviews and I get to the end of the interviews and I had already decided that I was going to start and end the book with my own story because I wanted to be, I'm, I'm big about, big on context. Things have to be understood in context. And so I wanted to make sure people understood that I'm an adoptee on my own quest as I'm interviewing all these women. So it starts out a little bit about my family. And then I had decided that at the end, in the last chapter, whatever I had decided by the time I finished the book, I would write about it. So if I decided I was not going to contact her, I would write about that. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was I, I just wanted to bookend it with, my beginnings and where I was at the moment I finished the book. And I was all prepared to start writing that I decided not to contact her. But these women <laughs> all convinced me that I, I just realized that here I was asking all these women to pour their hearts out and tell me the most intimate details of their life. And I wasn't willing to, you know, take this chance and contact her uh, and put myself on the line. And so I decided I was going to do it. But I had written in the letter to her that I would not contact her. I would wait for her to contact me. Now a year has gone by. So I thought, okay, I've got to give her a little warning shot over the bow here. So I sent her a little card and I said, still waiting to hear. Now that was the purpose of that was to let her know I was going to contact her again, right? So she would be prepared a little bit because I said I wasn't. So that was the, you know, that was prepping her a little bit. And then it must have been some months later, I cold called her. And I prepared for this. Of course, I'm shaking, you know, and I'm preparing for this by thinking, how am I going to keep her on the phone long enough to get a little bit of information? And so I hadn't even really been thinking about exactly what I wanted to ask her as much as I was thinking about how do you keep somebody on the phone when they want to hang up. So I called her up and she answered the phone and I said, this is Ann Fessler. I don't know if you, and I got about that far and she said, oh, hi. And I was so dumbfounded by that response since she hadn't written me back that I had I was mute. I didn't know what to say because that was, I was totally unprepared for that response. And so I told her that I said, Oh, are you willing to talk to me? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I thought maybe you weren't because you didn't write me back. And she said, Oh, you know, she goes, I, I bought you a birthday card a year ago, and then I didn't send it. And she was really torn because she knew that was going to open a door, and she would have to deal with the ramifications of that. So she was very happy about the phone call, but, you know, she just hadn't known how to deal with it, right? Like, who knows? I mean... We, none of us know how to deal with this. There's no roadmap for this kind of relationship. So, And they had no, no help no, whatsoever. No, no. So we talked for two hours. And at the end of the conversation, I said, well, do you think you'd be willing to meet? 
And she said, yes. And I said, okay, let me look at my calendar and I'll get back to you about some possible dates. And so I don't know, I can't remember now how much longer it was, but of course we had to meet in the town about an hour away from where she lived. And we spent the day together and she was completely open and honest about everything about the circumstances, except she would not tell me who my father was. Mm. And, but I realized later she was really protecting herself because she was worried that if I contacted him and she knew his personality, and as it turns out, I now know what his personality was like. Oh, you do. Good. He would have been like welcoming me into the family and very effusive and pretty soon the whole community would have known her secret. So, and she was really keeping this all close to her chest and she had not told her kids, her husband had passed away and she had never told her subsequent children that she had when she got married. And so it took her five years, but she did tell them that part. Five years. It took five years. So after meeting you five years to tell her family. Yeah. Wow. And she told the three uh, kids uh, and kids. They're my age. I mean, a little younger. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They were after me um, and they were shocked. I mean, you know, she kept nothing from them. They felt it was, you know, really uh, the fact that she could have had a child and surrendered it before they were born just did not compute in their head with who she was. And they were really, really shocked. And that was me at 14. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I was like, what? How did your mother tell you? Oh, not to, I don't want to hijack, but yeah, I, I understand that shock of it, yeah. my image of her. I just was like, what? You live to be my mom. Cause she was a fabulous mom, yeah. you know, and, and she was just hundred percent dedicated to me. It didn't, I could, and I was a teenager, so I was a little yeah. bit of pain. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, I just couldn't understand. I was like the whole image of my mom changed. I, and she, so yeah. she just sat me down at Christmas and she said, what if, what if I told you, you know, you know how you always ask for a brother or sister? Oh. Cause I was raised as an only child. I had two sisters, but they lived on the East coast. They were my father's children. So I oh. rarely saw them. I said, Oh my God, are you pregnant? That is so gross. <laughs> <laughs> and she oh, said right. and Not she now. said yeah and she said no 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 I um I found my child <gasps> and then the found my child I was like how do you lose a child <laughs> and I again 14 and it was yeah. 1988 and this wasn't as common then yeah. Yeah. I mean she found him at 18 on the nose she was like I'm going to find that yeah. boy wow oh mm-hmm. yeah so it took her time to to tell the kids and they had a hard time understanding that that was her, but did it eventually work out? Yeah. The, yeah. One of the, she had two sons and a daughter and the daughter was pretty upset. And I think part of the reason was because she had been very strict with her daughter and <laughs> knowing what can happen. That was me too. So, hmm? so to find out that your mother's been doing what she told you not to do is a little shocking, I think. So, but one of the sons, after the after she told them, one of the sons said, Can I have her contact information? Does she want to know us? And she said, Oh, I don't think so. And again, she's trying to keep all these connections from happening and things to kind of get out. She's trying to contain all this. And so she did give him the information. She felt he was entitled to it. And so all of a sudden, one day, you know, five years later, I get an email that 
And of course, I knew their names. And I see who's sending the email and I see the subject line and it says, it's your brother. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I mean, my heart jumped out of my chest. It's like, whoa, she told them. And we made a plan to meet and I flew to meet the three, my three half siblings and they didn't tell her. There's all this protecting of everyone in adoption, right? Worrying and protecting yes. other people's emotions when you don't really know, you know, how it's going to affect them, but you make your best guess and then you protect. So I got together with them and then, but they didn't tell her they were getting together with me and it took them some time, I'm going to say half a year or a year before they broke it to her that they had met me. Uh, and then, you know, gradually it worked out one time when I was going back to the Midwest on a trip that uh, we all got together. And about so about six months before she died, her whole family, meaning her three kids she raised and me, and their spouses and my spouse, we all got together and went out to dinner together. Oh, and then beautiful. she died about six months later. Beautiful. How was that for you? Was that? Well, you, you kind of in disbelief the whole time. I was really happy because I had to think that there was something cathartic in that for her. You know, that she had all of her children together in one place, you know, briefly before she died. We knew she was going to die. She knew she had a problem that was, you know, and she didn't want to get treatment for it. She just wanted to go naturally. And so we we all knew it was coming. And so she agreed to do it. And and I felt that it some kind of closure for her. For me, it was just kind of I, I, I don't I don't as a person who can really talk a lot. I don't have words for how to explain what it was like. It was, um, you're looking at these people who are total strangers and they're your half siblings. And I don't look very much like them. I look more like my father's side of the family. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's just a bizarre and interesting experience. And I'm sure if I lived closer to them, I would have an opportunity to discover all the ways that I am like them, you know, this whole nature nurture thing that adoptees have to sort of contend with. But I've been with them for minimal amount of time. So I haven't had that opportunity. And same with her, you know, I, I never got to fully develop our relationship, but she, there were definitely things about her that were very similar to me, you know. Yeah. The gardening. And, yeah. And so I did, I did actually, as I'm thinking about it now, I did have the opportunity at that same time on that same trip to tell her that I had figured out who my father was through DNA. And I wanted her to confirm because she had told me she wouldn't tell me. And so I broke it to her that I had done some research and I had figured out who he was. And of course, I knew because it was DNA, but I wanted her to to confirm before, you know. The last time I saw her, this would be my only chance to have her actually say, yes, that's your father and say something about him. And she did. Um, she said, yes, that's him. And, you know, she asked me how I figured it out. And she didn't know that he had already died. Um, and uh, she was she seemed moved by it. Like she felt bad that he had uh, passed away. And she told me that she had loved him, 
I mean, they had been going steady. She had his ring and all this kind of stuff. But um, she, uh, it was, it was really great. It was a great meeting to have, and you know, things really kind of were out on the table in a way that um, that I never expected. So it was, um, you know, again, closure for me as well. I bet. Was she proud of the work that you did? Uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. She's a very stoic person. And she will tell you anything. Anything I asked, she would tell me in very matter-of-fact terms, you know. Um, but she didn't talk about emotion very much in front of me. The, I would say the closest thing to that was when we were having lunch the first time we met and she said, she kind of drifted off for a minute and she said something about, you know, every little child you pass on the street, you wonder, you know, and um, I, I, I can't think of the exact words she used, but it was, um, you know. I was going to read it to you. Oh, it was incredible. No, she said, yes. When you walk down the street, you look at every little face and wonder. Yeah. 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 I mean, she nailed it right there, right? Yeah, exactly. Every little face and wonder. That was that was the most emotional she ever was in terms of saying anything that came from that part of her. The rest of it was was pretty. Um, you know, again, like I said, she anything I wanted to know, she would um, she would tell me about you know her and my father and their relationship and uh, the the progress of that. But she didn't really want to talk about emotions. I think she's one of those people. I don't know if she was like that before, but I would categorize her as one of those people who kind of walled off. The stone. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The stoic, the the turning the emotions off. I want, you know, it's funny. I always uh, wondered why my mom felt so detached Mm -hmm. emotionally. Now she was an orphan. You knew that. I mean, you felt that. I did. And I thought it was because she was an orphan. So she was orphaned very young and grew up in an orphanage. And I thought that that was her story. You know, I thought it all related to that until at 14, (laughs) you know, the sassy teenager was sat down and told she had a brother. And I realized that my mother was much more complex than I really even understood. Right. And that, and there was a part of me and I don't put this on her where I felt like I wasn't enough. Mm Mm-hmm as a daughter. Mm -hmm. And that now that makes sense. It's because I could feel my mother's sadness, her infinite sadness, very similar to your mom would give the facts and the data points, but not the emotion around it. And I think unlike some of a lot of the women that you write about, she did not get therapy. I'm uh, some of these women blow me away with how much they've been able to work through what they went through, Mm -hmm. but she's still very, I think stuck in that moment. Yeah. The relinquish, the surrender, I should say. I was going to say something about how this affects other members of the family. And since the book came out in 2006, I've gotten about 10,000 emails. And I try to respond to all of them. Oh, bless your heart. (laughs) One of the the categories of people I get emails from, of course, are um, family members who find out at some point, just like you, that their mother went through this. And they all say the same thing. And it's what my sibling said. Now it makes sense. Now her pride, her sense of like keeping everything really private, not divulging too much, calling her a very private person, you know, and she used to keep her bedroom door locked 
I think part of that was because she had things in there that related to, you know, either things I sent her. Now, she may have done this her whole life as well, but it's, you know, there was this thing where she kind of had a wall that she wouldn't let anybody go beyond. And so that was what was in there was personal. And it turned out that she, as I mentioned at the end of the book, she did have my father's high school ring in that bedroom. She hung on to it all those years. And I now have it, which is very exciting because when she died, they're going through all of her things and dispersing stuff. They found a ring and they thought it was their father's ring. And it just sat around for several years. And then they looked at the, one of my brothers um, said, looked at the date and went, wait a minute, that's not the date dad graduated. And he went, oh, this is Anne's father's ring that she's been trying. Because I said, when you go through her stuff, please look and see if you can find this ring. Oh. And so years, several years after she died, they figured out that they did have that ring and he sent it to me. Oh my God. So that was the going steady ring between my oh, father and father. That gives me chills. What a beautiful story. And I'm so happy that you got the kind of the full conclusion. I know there's always pockets of emptiness in this whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. There's voids that will always exist, right? but you did get a pretty complete you know and and not a lot of people do and I think with the genealogy sites and things like that these millions of women who have remained silent Mm -hmm. are uh, sadly being exposed and maybe weren't ready for it that's right and I those are some of the emails I mean there was a I started after you know I mean it's been 16 years since the book came out and I probably still get three emails a week uh, from readers right and that started picking up again in the last several years because so many people are doing genealogy research. And so um, I, I get, you know, contacted by somebody who said, we just found out my mother had had a child or, you know, whatever they get outed. And a lot of people aren't part of any kind of group that helps them navigate that process and uh, sometimes the mothers just say, don't call again, don't call again, because their first reaction is, oh, my God, the secret is out. And, you know, I haven't told my husband, I haven't told my children. And so their their first response sometimes is to just say, I don't want contact. You know, Stop. it's fear. <laughs> it's fear of feeling like they felt then. So some of the adoption support groups and both for moms and adoptees and so forth that exist around the country will help people through some of that. But, um, uh, you know, to cold call, uh, it worked out for me, but sometimes those cold calls can result in, you know, a total rejection. And then it's hard to pick up again, because if she says, don't contact me again, then, you know, that's different than just no response. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things can be cut short just because of the tactics used in contacting. I could talk to you for hours. I really could. I, well, I think it's your, what you call yourself a wanderer and a, cir- a circular, circular. Yeah, kind of, circular yeah. Yeah, yeah. That part of your nature has allowed so many of these stories, millions of stories to, to be understood. And I want to say, I thank you for your book, for collecting the stories. Mm-hmm. You gave me the gift of knowing my mother in a new way. She had so much trauma in her life, like I explained, but she couldn't express it. And she couldn't explain what happened to her, which is the name of this series. 
Yeah. And because she was told to forget. And I, yeah. we didn't even touch on that, but this word forget yeah. that was instilled in these women mm-hmm. or teenagers yeah. that they had to forget this is just absurd. And I'm so glad that you cracked it open. One other thing about that is the women, because they were told they would forget and move on and they'd have other children and they'd forget all about this one that they had. Well, you know, to tell somebody that it's just, they had to know that was not true. Um, but that further damaged a lot of people because when they couldn't forget, they really thought something was wrong with them. In other words, they told me, everybody told me I would forget, but I couldn't. So something's wrong with me. And um, that was yet, yet another adding insult to injury. And rather than talking to them about how this was you know, going to affect them and giving them strategies for dealing with it, it wasn't done. Um, just it further, further damaged people. And it's, you know, it's unconscionable. It is. And to think it was a generation ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was our mothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's unconscionable and it's, it's, it's hard to wrap our brain around and it's, you know, as I'm doing this series and I can't wait to release this conversation, the feedback that I'm getting, people are just like, I had no idea. Yeah. And I, I no did that because I had no idea until somebody educated me, right? So a mom took, you know, took a chance and educated me. And then um, I, all the moms that I interviewed took a chance and allowed me to use their stories to educate other people. And both moms who had never had contact, I mean, some of the women I interviewed said, I never had contact with another birth mother. I'll use in quotes because I don't really use that word, but that, that they had never been able to talk about it with anyone. And some of them actually had been in therapy for years and didn't tell the therapist. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> they thought that it couldn't possibly have anything to do with issues they were having. And some of those were about attachment, um, about emotional issues, about not trusting people. I mean, who are you going to trust after your own family sends you away because they're so embarrassed by you and your boyfriend abandoned you and you and know don't talk to you tells you something you find out is not true? Who are you going to trust, right? And so, um, so somebody's—I mean, one woman told me she'd been in therapy for thirty years and she never told the therapist half of what she told me in the three-hour interview, and that was because she was still carrying that shame and was too ashamed to tell the therapist what had happened. And she didn't understand there could possibly be a relationship between what she was experiencing and surrendering her child. Mm. Yeah. And I think also to the message to the children, you were loved. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of what they carry is, oh, well, I wasn't wanted. Just like you assumed in the beginning of the book or in the yeah. beginning she yeah. does not want to know me. I'm not somebody yeah. that she wants to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to understand the complexity of this um, system yeah. that they found themselves in. And yeah. it was a system. Yeah. And it's very hard for somebody who's young to believe or feel what it was like at that time and that kind of pressure. And, you know, I've heard a lot of adoptees say, well, if she would have wanted to keep me, she could have. You know, that's just not true. You know, in so many of these cases, there may be some here and there where they had opportunities and they said, you know, you know, I want a college education. I want better. The child will be in a better family, you know, where they a combination of what they wanted out of life and what they bought into based on what was told to them. 
But the idea that it was just toss them away and adoptees live with that. And when people keep, uh, you know, when families keep adoption kind of pushed down in the family and won't talk about it, that signals there's something bad there that you don't want to talk about. Because if it wasn't bad, why wouldn't you just talk about it? You know, um, and so there's just, uh, you know, people need to know the truth. And all of all of the work I've done both before and after, which, you know, sort of chance favors a prepared mind, all of my work up until the point when I had met the woman had been about the, the gap between recorded history and lived history. So the gap between the history that we read about in school or that we learn as this authoritative official history and the, that same history is understood by those who actually lived it, mm-hmm. right? Because theoretically, all of our lives make up history as a whole, but only certain people's stories get represented. And these women's stories were intentionally suppressed. They were made voiceless. And so the more I learned about that, you know, since that was exactly what I was already interested in. And a lot of the work had been about women's issues. It was like, oh, my God, everything is converging. Everything I've ever been interested in and everything I am yes. as a person is converging on this narrative about, about what has happened to these women. And I just felt completely 100% motivated in, to get these stories told and get them out there before it was too late. Your life's work. My life's work, absolutely. And I'm so grateful. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm so grateful to meet you. You mean the world to me, really, you do. You've helped put pieces together in my life Uh and lots of lives. And that's your life's work. And aren't we lucky? (laughs) Thank you. That's very sweet. As Anne said, all of our lives make up history as a whole. However, certain people's stories get represented. The stories of the girls who went away were intentionally suppressed. They were rendered voiceless. It took me decades and being a mother to understand the impact of what my mother and the millions of girls went through during the baby scoop era. The pain, the loss, the sorrow, the never-ending questions they were forced to live with. All I have is tremendous gratitude for Anne for representing those women forced to surrender. And to the women, we see you and we hear you. Until next time, stay curious and be well.